please turn in your Bible this morning for our scripture lesson from Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 14. If you'd like to follow in the uh, Pew Bibles, it's on page 1001. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, and is more excellent than theirs. This is the inerrant word of God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us today through your word, that we might be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last week, we began a new series, as uh, most of you know, in this book of Hebrews, with a sermon entitled, God Has Spoken. We continue today looking looking at this very same opening paragraph that we began with last week, Uh, and this paragraph forms a prologue to the whole book, shaping for us uh, where the writer is going and what themes and subjects he's going to unpack throughout this letter. We can look at the Old Testament nation of Israel and see three major offices of leadership that were instituted for that nation. The offices of prophet, those who spoke the word of God to the people, who proclaimed truth as the voice of God to the people. The priest, those who interceded to God on behalf of the people and made sacrifices for the sin of the people. And then the king, which of course is a student of the Bible knows was, uh, was not the plan originally, but the people of God uh, demanded that and the Lord allowed them to have a king. And then of course, as only God can do, he used even that for his own purposes uh, and for his own glory through Christ. The king, those who ruled the people on behalf of God. These seem to be also sort of the natural offices that we as humans want in our societies, the things that that we crave, the leadership that we need uh, in life. I began to think a little bit about what those might look like uh, within our society. Because we want a prophet who's going to tell us what's true, what reality is. We want a priest to help us deal with the guilt and the shame that we have inside. We desire a king. We may say we don't, but really we desire someone to rule over us, to be a king in our lives. So in this day and age, what comes to mind? What fills those categories for us? Well, perhaps a prophet in our day 
of a- and age is, is information, the World Wide Web, social media, academic institutions, and the news media. Maybe our society's priest is the entertainment industry. If we can distract ourselves long enough, maybe we can repress and set aside that guilt and shame that the world deals with. And then I think perhaps our king in our society is either economics or maybe politics. Most people live under the rule of economic advancement, don't they? It determines our work. It usually determines our politics, where we live, our sphere of influence. Poor and rich alike are driven in large part by their economic situation. Certainly there are other things that could fulfill these longings as well that we could talk about, and maybe some of those other things have come to your mind. The point is this. We have these needs and desires. They're innate within us. And we're going to find something in the world, perhaps, that will satisfy those longings, even if it's only temporary at best. Of course, the reality is these things like truth are up for grabs in our society, aren't they? I mean, we can't even decide what a girl and a boy are anymore. So the internet and institutions of higher learning aren't very helpful in this pursuit of truth. Everyone defines it for themselves. There is no truth, we hear folks say. They're not very reliable prophets, are they? And deep down, we know that many of us are just chasing after the diversions of entertainment and pleasure. It's a momentary fix, maybe, to help us deal with the difficulties in our hearts and minds instead of confronting them. It just reminds us how spiritually needy we are in trying to fix those things through diversions and through popular entertainment and culture. These things can't possibly satisfy humanity's need for a priest, something to offer cleansing from our sin and from our guilt. Money and politics, well, if we've learned anything over the past several years, it's these things that are our cruel taskmasters and not benevolent kings in our lives at all. And so like the Old Testament believers, we too are looking ahead to the future in faith, looking for something to fulfill these desires in us, looking for a prophet, a priest, and a king. In the New Testament, we see these three offices coming together and fulfilled completely by God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the final and perfect prophetic word from God, as we saw last week. He is the one and only mediator between God and man, and he is the eternal, just, and righteous ruler of the universe. This is a large emphasis of the book of Hebrews that we're going to see as we work our way through this, is Christ and his role in these matters, especially compared to these roles in the Old Testament, and how Christ is better than all of those. We see not only that the reality of Jesus completing God's plan for the world in these offices, but also the reasons for it. So what? Why is it important that Jesus fulfills 
these roles. And we're going to be seeing that as well as we work through this book. These three offices, perhaps not explicitly mentioned by name, are the emphasis of these opening four verses that we're looking at last week and today. Last week's message, you'll remember, focused on Jesus, the great prophet, the way in which God speaks today in these last days. The word, the very living word of God in the flesh. He is the embodiment of God's message of hope and love to the broken world. Reading in verse 2 and 3, we see that God has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the great prophet of God, the one who spoke the universe into existence at the dawn of time, the one who speaks God's message to the world today, and the one who has the final word at the end of time. We looked at most of these attributes last week, and so we won't rehash those. Today we continue his prophetic office with that final phrase that we didn't get to last week. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Have you ever wondered what keeps the universe together? What holds it together and keeps it going? Every system, every machine, every organism that we understand or know anything about has something at its source, something that is at the heart of what keeps it going and of what holds it together. Much of the discovery of science and medicine is looking deeper into seeing what makes the created world work. When I was a boy, and maybe for a lot of you, you can remember this too, we still lived in an era when most doctors were general practitioners or primary care physicians. When you went to the doctor, you went to your GP, he did something, and that was the end of the story, usually. But today what happens when you go to the doctor and he or she finds something that needs to be addressed? Well, nine times out of ten, it's a referral to a specialist. And then there might even be several layers of specialists that you have to track down beyond that. Well, the more that science and medicine learns about the human body and how it works, the more there is to learn as it opens up to our minds and as we begin to understand, truly we are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist exclaims. And this is true in all the sciences, isn't it? The more we know, the more we realize we're only scratching the surface and we really don't know that much. There's so much more to learn. Some would have us believe that there isn't anything behind it at all. That it's just random. Order out of chaos. But God's word teaches us that there is not something, but someone behind it all. The word of God, Jesus Christ, the great prophet, not only spoke everything into existence, but he maintains it all by the word of his power. There's that prophetic office. 
He is its source. When the Apostle Paul addressed the folks in Athens, Greece, he told them that God wasn't like their dead statues and idols that they had all around them. Gods that were far removed from humanity, that were distant, that were disconnected. But Paul says, rather, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. In Colossians, Paul quotes an early hymn of the church that we have looked at previously in our study there and even last week as we've been looking at these verses. And it emphasizes that Jesus was not only the creator of everything, but there, Paul says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. There is that idea that if, if Jesus were to let go, it would all implode, it would all be gone. Jesus sustains his creation by the word of his power. The world will tell us that this is unscientific nonsense. But the very word of God to us, the Logos, Christ himself, from eternity past and the beginning of creation, has spoken and is the final authority in all things. And the word tells us that he is the one who upholds and sustains everything by the word of his power. The prophets that preceded Jesus spoke for God, but they didn't have any creative word of power in and of themselves. Their speech was on behalf of God, but it didn't produce anything on its own. But Jesus is the word of God. All creative power and force resides in his person. He speaks, and galaxies are formed. The blind are given sight, and the dead are raised to new life. So tomorrow morning, when you get up from bed, you walk into the bathroom, you look into the mirror for the new day ahead of you, wondering how am I going to face the challenges that are before me? How am I going to deal with this person I'm looking at and his struggles and all that he deals with? Remember this, child of God. You don't have to worry. For you do not face them alone. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power is with you. And he is holding you up too. In his most famous sermon, while he walked the earth, Jesus said this, Do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Therefore, do not be anxious 
saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Did you notice where Jesus tells us to direct our attention? What does our world tell us? Our world says, look in here, find your meaning, find in in yourself. Jesus says, no, look away from yourself. Look to my kingdom. Look away from your goodness and righteousness and look to mine. Because the reality is you don't have any. But instead, look to Jesus. His righteousness is enough for us. His sustaining power is enough for us. This is the good news that the great prophet of God has spoken to the world. Look to him and to the words of eternal life contained in his word in the scriptures. He made you according to his own image with value, with dignity, and with worth. And even though we have marred that image with our sin, he has also spoken a way for us to be restored to that former glory. Through his son. Because Jesus is also the great high priest. Continuing in verse 3, we have this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Leading up to this particular phrase here, the, the author has painted a glorious picture of the son for us in his eternal transcendence. Jesus in his eternal state and being in heaven. The one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power. And then, in just this brief little phrase, we see the encapsulation of Jesus' work on earth. The unrestricted, eternal, almighty, all-knowing God of the universe took on a body like ours, became a baby in a manger as we have just celebrated. Why? To make purification for our sins. Interestingly enough, this office of Christ, which isn't explicitly named here, and it's only talked about in five little words, is going to be the largest subject of the rest of the book that he unpacks for us. It'll be one of the glorious truths that we'll be able to delve into and really dig into throughout the coming months. In a few minutes, we're going to have the privilege that's ours every month to come to the table together as a family, to fellowship with Jesus at his supper. How are you going to approach, how do you approach this time together? How do you approach it with Jesus, and how do you approach it with your brothers and sisters? What is it that you're looking for here? And what do you do with the guilt of your sin that overwhelms you? Does guilt ever paralyze you? It does me. Moms and dads, do you ever mess up with your kids and think, what a miserable parent am I? And that guilt paralyzes your ability to speak into their lives. 
What about hatred in your hearts, gossip, evil speech towards a, a spouse or a dear friend or a coworker? Maybe a struggle with substance addiction or sexual sin or arrogance or jealousy, all of these things. And then Sunday rolls around and we show up here and you think to yourself, I'm a fraud. What am I doing here with all these people? I don't belong here. I'm not worthy of this. Only these people could see in my heart and see what's really going on. I don't have any business being a Christian, much less being a church member. What do we do about that? What do we do with the guilt and shame that we experience in life and because of sin? You know, more often than not, I think we believe the answer is some kind of self-loathing. We beat ourselves up and we want to pay penance somehow, as though that's going to satisfy God. Should we mourn our sin? Yes, of course. But to what end? We can't do penance for our sin. There's nothing to be added to Jesus' finished work on the cross. You are forgiven. It is finished, Jesus said. Any penance that you attempt at this point is an affront to what Jesus has already completed for us. Did you notice the writer refers to Christ's transcendent attributes that have come before this as those that are going on continuously? He is upholding the universe. But notice here that his purification for our sins was a one-time act. There's no need for a continual sacrifice. That's not what happens here. Now, penance and repentance are two very different things. And it's important, I think, for us to understand that. Penance is trying to assuage our guilt and that feeling of, 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 of the sin overwhelming us by being sorry enough to please God, to receive his acceptance. But that's a fool's errand. First, you could never be sorry enough to win God's favor. And secondly, you don't need to. Jesus has already done that for you. Jesus has won God's favor on your behalf. And no sin can take away or diminish God's love for you and your situation before him. Because you wear the righteousness of his son. You are perfect in his sight. You are one of his There is nothing you can do to remove yourself from his favor and from his love for you. Repentance, on the other hand, is a gift given to us by God's Spirit. And that enables us to turn away from our sin and to put it to death more and more as we grow in our faith. There's a tension here, isn't there, that's really tricky to navigate. How do I know if I'm approaching the table in the right way? Well, if you're coming to the table spiritually whipping yourself as if you need to do penance for your sin, then you don't fully appreciate what the table represents. We're not re-sacrificing Jesus at this table to pay for your sin. Because that work was completed once and for all. We're also not coming simply to memorialize him, remembering what he did in order to seek forgiveness as though our 
earnest remembrance of him and our remorse over our sin will somehow satisfy that guilt that we experience. But instead, here's the key. We're coming to fellowship with Jesus. To draw upon his strength and grace to ask for his help in the struggle over sin and with that help to pledge our walking in new obedience to him, looking forward in faith to what we were or what we are and what we will be ultimately in him. In Philippians 3, Paul writes this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Luther says it this way, we must despair of our own penances and our own purging of our sins because before we even begin to confess our sins have already been forgiven I would even go on to say that it is not until then that Christ's own purging becomes operative and produces true penitence in us it is in this way that his righteousness works for our righteousness or works our righteousness Luther is saying that if you want to live in the power of the resurrection, seeing progress in your spiritual battle over your sin, you must begin by doing away with your self-righteous behavior, trying to pay for your own sin with feelings of guilt and actions of penance. Following the brief phrase that we have there about Jesus' humiliation, the author of Hebrews takes us immediately back to heaven. What a beautiful Beautiful way of, of tri- making us go back to the transcendent nature of Christ. And he shows us Jesus exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Our minds have trouble grasping and understanding God's eternal purposes, and so we have to be careful not to speculate too much and draw on our limited understanding of these things. And yet at the same time, we can't ignore the truth that's presented to us about Christ and his two natures. Sometimes we just have to step back and, and wonder in mystery and, and worship and be amazed at these truths. It's hard to understand how the eternal, unchangeable state of Christ is compatible with his earthly, physical nature that he took upon himself in the incarnation and even who he is now in his exaltation. But his enthronement in heaven at the right hand of God as King of kings and Lord of lords happened after he made purification for our sins. This is important. His work was incomplete and it signified his being seated. The fact that Christ is seated signifies that it's finished. The work of salvation, the work of redemption is done. It is complete. 
This is a very important part of who Jesus is in all of his glory that we should not pass over. Sometimes we try to separate these things as though it was unfortunate that Jesus had to come and to die, and that was a negative thing. Perhaps as though this was a plan B for God, an oh no backup plan that God had to implement in an emergency action after Adam and Eve sinned. No. From eternity past, it was part of the perfect will of God to exalt the Son to his rightful place of glory and majesty. And that involved his humiliation upon the cross and his resurrection from the tomb. What an amazing truth that even in his death on the cross and even in his becoming sin for us, Jesus was glorified and exalted in it. Remember what Paul says in Philippians, those beautiful verses, another, another hymn of the early church, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of this, because of that humility, because of that death on the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is the name that the author of Hebrews tells us that the angels are greater than the the angels that exalts him above the angels so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has been exalted at the right hand of the Father and has been given a name that's above every other name that has ever existed. He is seated because his work of salvation is finished. But he is not inactive, folks. In the weeks ahead, we will see the beauty of Jesus' reign in heaven as the one who is interceding for us to the Father as our great high priest. So come to Jesus' supper now. Come listening to the one who is the prophet, the one who has spoken to us today in his word, both in the hearing of his word and now in the sacrament. Embrace the good news that has been proclaimed, which is now pictured before us at the table. Come to Jesus' supper with the full understanding that the forgiveness of your sins happened on the cross once and for all. And that the wounds of the great high priest plead for you before the Father's throne. Remember the hymn stanza, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And come to Jesus' table today, ready and willing to submit to his authority and kingship in your life. Leave your pride and your stubborn will behind and ask him to conquer your heart completely for his glory. Forsake your sin and live for him.
And folks, don't come to this table downhearted. Come with great joy in your hearts as one who is forgiven. One who is a child of God. One who, because of Christ, has a seat at his table. Who is a favored guest and embraced and loved because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. This is a time of joy, a time of celebration, a time to embrace who you are in Christ and to ask him to strengthen you, to help you, to grow you in grace as you walk with him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you that we have a mediator in Christ, one who is our perfect prophet, priest, and king. We thank you that as we sit here today, that you view us even as you view your own son, and that we have fellowship at your table because of what Christ has done for us. And so, Father, would you now minister to us your grace, provide for us in our need, and sustain us so that we might walk in obedience anew serving you, worshiping you, bringing glory to you, for you are worthy to be praised. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.